Hello, hello, you're listening to the Bitcoin Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy. And if you're new here, welcome. This is a show where we discuss all things Bitcoin on a weekly basis. This is the show that I wish I had when I first got into Bitcoin, which is why I started this podcast. This is your one-stop shop of complex topics in the wonderful world of Bitcoin, explained in simple ways. As a reminder, this show is available on YouTube, Spotify, Amazon Music, and a whole bunch of other platforms. So wherever you might be listening from, if you like the show, be sure to follow and subscribe. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thebtcadvocate. Today's episode is sponsored by myself. More specifically, I have a book called Hyper-Bitcoinization, A Story About a Revolution. And if you're watching this on YouTube, there's a link down below in the description. Otherwise, you can search for the title on Amazon and it should be the first result. It's not selling out if it's my own product. So last week, we talked about the Bitcoin trilemma and why, contrary to what is commonly argued, it is extremely unlikely that something quote-unquote better will come along and replace Bitcoin. This week, we'll continue our discussion on addressing criticisms of Bitcoin, and we're starting off by tackling the most common concern that people have around Bitcoin, which is surrounding its energy usage. But before we delve into the counterpoints against the Bitcoin uses too much energy argument, let's first break down this argument. Uh, because I find that even people who subscribe to this argument aren't all the same. So we have a lot of people who come from different camps. Uh, there are people who are what I like to call extreme environmentalists who just don't like the consumption of energy at all in the first place, right? So, you know, they don't like driving cars either. They want everybody to bike, right? Uh, and then there are people who want to push their own crypto projects, uh, and also, there are people who just dislike any crypto or digital asset things in general and would just grasp onto any counter-argument that comes along their way uh, without doing any research. So there are people, for example, uh, who just like Peter Schiff, uh, who just believe that Bitcoin sucks. So no matter what you say to them, they're not going to be convinced, right? Uh, and of course, there are people who might be a mixture of all of those things that I just mentioned. Uh, so... I'm going to do my best to address all those concerns and really provide a comprehensive counter-argument uh, and address kind of those different camps um, in a very comprehensive way. Uh, so first, we're going to have to break down some of the assumptions that are baked into the Bitcoin uses too much energy argument. Specifically, there's three kind of degrees or levels of how misguided, and this is my opinion, but you know, in my opinion, misguided some of these assumptions are. Uh, so number one is that uh, there are people who say that Bitcoin is worthless. So therefore, any energy used towards it is a waste of energy. And number two, we have people that are like Bitcoin might have some value, but it's not worth the energy we would need to run it. So let's not do it. Uh, and number three, we have people that are like, okay, Bitcoin might have some value and perhaps we should run it, but we should also focus on exploring alternative methods of consensus like proof of stake, uh, which uses less energy. So why don't we just move Bitcoin to proof of stake? And so as you can see, there's a whole bunch of different arguments and different opinions. Uh, so if you're in camp one, though, of the Bitcoin is worthless camp, uh, it's highly doubtful that you'll find any value in listening to what I have to say next. Uh, so we spent the past two months or so talking about how Bitcoin is not worthless. 
And if you don't get it by now, you're probably a lost cause. I'm I'm sorry, right? Like that sounds cruel, but you know, why are you even listening to this podcast at this point, right? So I'm just gonna skip number one. Uh, now let's address camp number two, which is the idea that Bitcoin is, it might be worth some value, but it's not quote unquote worth the energy that it's used to mine it. Uh, so to tackle this argument, let me first ask you a question. Uh, so pick your favorite bank, whether it's RBC if you're in Canada or JP Morgan if you're in America or if you're in Europe, I don't know, Barclays or like Santander, uh, whatever, right? So pick the bank that you're most familiar with. How would you estimate the carbon footprint that is associated with the operation of that bank? Uh, well, maybe you can start by adding up all the energy consumption of all the office buildings and the branches of the bank, and then factor in uh, the energy consumption of the employees who are there five days a week, eight hours a day. Uh, and what about the energy that the employees use when commuting to the office, right? So some of them might take public transportation, which uses a lot less energy, but a lot of them might drive, right? And if you have executives, bank executives are rich, right? So they might be flying their private jets to meetings and stuff. So why don't you add that up too? And what about the servers that are constantly running at the bank? Uh, and that's just one bank, by the way. Uh, what if I do the same things for companies like Western Union or MoneyGram or companies that specializes in wiring money overseas? Uh, so notice how these are all industries that Bitcoin could potentially replace, right? So I add up all the energy consumption of all the companies that Bitcoin can potentially replace. Uh, and if I say, if we replaced all these companies with Bitcoin, uh, will we end up using more energy or will we end up actually saving energy? Because remember, Bitcoin is digital. So with digital products, you don't need to double the amount of energy used as you double the amount of users. Uh, and I think this is a concept that a lot of people have trouble understanding because especially the older crowd who are not as familiar with digital technology as uh, somebody who's younger, right? So, you know, if you're older and by older, I mean over the age of, let's say, you know, 45 or 50, uh, you're used to going to the store and, you know, buying tangible products and stuff like that, right? You're not too super plugged into the digital space unless, you know, you work there or, you know, you have some other experience. Um, but yeah, think about it this way, though. Uh, think of Netflix or Spotify. It takes a base amount of energy to run a server, but that server doesn't really care if it's serving 50 people or 100 people. Uh, maybe it will start caring if it's a difference between like 1,000 people and 10,000 people, right? But each additional person doesn't, you know, proportionally add uh, that amount of energy, that percentage of energy uh, used by the server, right? So for example, if 100 people download uh, like an app or something, and you have the 101th person, uh, 101st person download the same app, like it doesn't cause a 1% increase in the amount of like computing power probably causes a lot less, right? Uh, but say if you need to run an office building and you double the amount of employees, then your energy consumption will also roughly double because, well, humans are physical things, right? So if you double the amount of employees, it's going to lead to roughly uh, the doubling of the amount of overhead because, you know, as humans, we all need to eat, uh, we all need to drink water, uh, we all need to go to the bathroom. Like, we're all very similar in terms of our physical needs, right? So 
yeah, if you double the amount of employees, that's probably a linear relationship or roughly a linear relationship, right? Um, my point is that Bitcoin is actually a very efficient way of using energy because it's all digital. Uh, and if we were to use Bitcoin and replace our physical infrastructure, like office buildings and these companies with um, these stumbling bureaucracies, uh, things will be a lot faster and you actually save energy instead of using more energy. Uh, however, again, I think this criticism uh, of energy usage comes from the fact that Bitcoin's energy usage is very easy to quantify uh, versus it's very difficult to measure how much energy that JP Morgan consumes on a daily basis. Uh, sure, you can do the things like I said that uh, you add up how much energy their office buildings are using, you add up the amount of employees that they have, and like you add up how much energy they consume on their commute and how much food uh, each employee eats. Like it gets really complicated, first of all. And then also there's like second and third uh, factors, right? Like if JP Morgan is working with another company, how much of that, like of the total combined energy usage of the two companies combined of them working on a project together, what percentage is attributable to JP Morgan and what percentage is attributable to the other company, right? You can see how this gets like super complicated. Um, so it's very not easy to estimate the amount of energy used by JP Morgan, but it's very easy to uh, look at how much energy Bitcoin is using because again, it's easy to quantify. And by the way, just for reference as to how big the carbon footprint is for Bitcoin exactly, uh, let me put things into perspective. Uh, so according to a report from Masari in January of 2022, the aviation industry emits 1,982 metric tons of CO2 per year, or they emitted that in 2022 uh, or 2021, I guess, because it came out in 2022. But yeah, anyways, in a year, right, the marine transport uh, industry emitted 1,503 metric tons air conditioners, 984 metric tons, data centers, 100 metric tons, global banking system, 130 metric tons, the gold industry, 122 metric tons, tumble dryers, 53 metric tons, and Bitcoin, 41 metric tons, the lowest out of the entire list. So Bitcoin actually has the lowest carbon footprint out of any of those things I just mentioned. In fact, Bitcoin uses less energy per year than Christmas lights. And those are only on for like three months out of the year. Uh, so if energy consumption was really an issue, uh, we should be campaigning to ban Christmas lights instead of Bitcoin. Um, but I don't see, you know, a huge campaign against Christmas lights. Like, why don't we push back against that, right? But further, uh, this whole idea that we should focus on reducing our energy consumption is in itself problematic. Uh, to see why, let me ask you this. Uh, do we use more or less energy on a per capita basis compared to humans back a thousand years ago? Uh, so it's 2023 now, and I'm talking about per capita, so I'm stripping out the fact that our global population is much greater. Uh, but just on a per capita basis, do you think we use more or less energy than someone in 1023 AD did? Uh, the answer would, of course, be more, right? We would use more energy even on a per capita basis now. Uh, why? Uh, well, now we have things like planes, trains, cars, we have smartphones, we have computers, we have indoor plumbing, we have things like elevators, uh, you know, things that they didn't have a thousand years ago. Uh, but all those things take energy. 
Uh, so if energy consumption was really a problem, a great way to reduce energy consumption would be to collectively decide, as a society, to all go back a thousand years in terms of technology and give up on all those nice things I just mentioned like indoor plumbing because energy consumption is bad, right? And now that I spelled it out, do you notice how ridiculous this argument is? The world population has just eclipsed 8 billion people in 2023 and it's projected to hit 10 billion before 2050. Uh, so if we're going to lift billions of people out of poverty and introduce a few more billion people onto this earth, we're going to need to consume more energy, and there is simply no way around it. Of course, I am not advocating for wasting energy. Please still turn off your lights and your faucets if you're not using it. Uh, but what I am saying is that the crux of the issue is not figuring out ways to use less energy. The crux of the issue is figuring out ways to generate energy in an environmentally responsible way and spending that energy on something that is worthwhile. And again, spending that energy on Bitcoin is worthwhile because it has the capability to provide financial services in a decentralized way without the need for cumbersome huge bureaucracies that sits in the middle of every transaction. And I know some people are clamoring to say at this point that uh, we should instead use digital assets that use proof of stake as the consensus mechanism, uh, which this brings me neatly into my second point, uh, which is why not proof of stake? Uh, to answer this question, I must bring you back all the way to the beginning of this podcast in episode one, uh, where we discuss the axiom of money. In case you forgot, here's a 30 second brief. The axiom of money states that in order for something to serve as money, work or some other tangible effort must be expended to acquire more units of that money, otherwise that money will trend towards worthlessness. Uh, so for example, gold follows the axiom of money, because someone had to dig it out of the ground, refine it, and purify it, and then cast it into a coin. Uh, and then there's a limited amount of it out there, so it's rare and it's hard to find, so it takes a lot of effort to make a pure gold coin. Same thing for Bitcoin. Proof of work makes it so that it's a really non-trivial effort to acquire more Bitcoin. Our fiat money, i.e. government-issued banknotes, violates the axiom of money. Because governments can just print the banknotes out of thin air and to their discretion. Uh, so no effort has been expended when they make more banknotes. Proof of stake requires that a party puts up some coins as their stake in exchange for a chance to be selected as the next validator and thus receive more coins as a reward. And the more coins one stakes, the more rewards they would be expected to get. However, the issue with this though is that where does the value of the coin come from? Uh, in proof of work, it is simple. I need to expend electricity, or specifically computational power, which requires electricity, uh, in proof of stake, the coins are just popped into existence by the protocol itself, so no work has been expended to create it. Uh, since, you know, I can just make a proof of stake coin in 5 minutes and have it up and running, uh, whereas if I try to make a proof of work coin, to get it going, I'd have to actually mine it myself or um, get someone else to actually use their computational power, i.e. effort, to run it, right? So both of those things, I would have to either get myself to expend effort or get someone else to expend effort. Um, so you see how proof of stake also violates the axiom of money. Uh, now, does this mean I believe that Ethereum or any other proof of stake coin is worthless? Uh, no, I think there are some cool use cases for Ethereum. 
Uh, but in the context of what we're talking about, which is building a monetary base layer for the world, we need proof of work because Bitcoin is money. And remember what money is. Money is information that says I have worked for something but delayed my consumption of it, i.e. the fruit of my labor, until a later time. And this thing that I call money is a representation of the fruits of my labor, which I'm willing to potentially trade it with you in exchange for some good or service that you're going to provide me. Uh, so for instance, I go to a job, I get paid, the money that I get is a representation of the value that I just uh, provided my employer or my society. And in order for something to serve as money, we need to be certain that work has gone into each and every unit of it. If something that we use as money can be poofed into existence with no effort, uh, then eventually at some point people stop believing that it has value, right? So think of the $100 trillion Zimbabwe banknote. If you try to buy something with it, the merchant will be like, hmm, did you really put $100 trillion worth of effort into earning that banknote? I'm starting to get a little sus. So again, Bitcoin is money uh, and proof of stake coins are not. Uh, again, I highly implore you to go back to the beginning couple of episodes where I talk about this stuff in more detail, uh, and I'm not going to beat on the same drum over and over again. Uh, okay, so now I've talked in length about why Bitcoin's energy usage is efficient and not wasteful, and why we need proof of work, uh, and why we can't just simply move it to proof of stake. Uh, because you would destroy the axiom of money and destroy the value proposition if you moved away from uh, proof of work. Uh, now, for the remaining part of this episode, though, I did want to talk about how Bitcoin is, in fact, a pivotal piece in the solution to climate change and not part of the problem. So admittedly, this does sound a little bit counterintuitive. So how can this be, you ask? How can something that consumes energy be a solution to climate change? Uh, well, let me explain. What you have to recognize first is that Bitcoin is what's called energy agnostic, meaning that it does not care whether the electricity you're using for it comes from coal or from wind or solar. Uh, so in the past, many people have criticized Bitcoin for being mined with coal. However, this is not the fault of Bitcoin itself because it's up to the discretion of the miner what energy source it uses. Bitcoin itself does not care. So there's nothing about Bitcoin that is inherently dirty or polluting. It just depends on where the energy comes from. Uh, so this makes it no different than an electric vehicle, for instance. Uh, although electric vehicles has been touted as the universal symbol of environmentalism for a long time now, uh, most people are not aware of the electricity source or where the electricity came from that's used to charge the car. Uh, so let me give you a scenario. In scenario one, a person drives a gas car, but they, let's say, live right next to a gasoline refinery, so the gasoline hardly has to move or travel anywhere, and pretend the oil that's used to make the gasoline is also local. In scenario two, let's say a person drives an EV, but they live far away from everything, and let's say the only energy source they have is a coal-powered power plant, and also plenty of electricity is lost along the way in the wires because it has to travel a super long distance. Uh, so in this scenario, the carbon footprint of the gasoline car is actually much smaller. So it's not always necessarily the case uh, that an EV will be more environmentally friendly than a gasoline car. 
uh, because you're you got to look at the total amount of energy that is used to generate that electricity as well as the efficiency and the environmentally friendliness of the car itself right uh, so it's misguided to criticize bitcoin for its energy usage without understanding the energy mix of the different types of sources where the electricity came from and on that note according to a forbes article in july of 2021 bitcoin mining uses a higher mix of sustainable energy than any major country or industry and this is a forbes article by the way so forbes is not a pro bitcoin publication by any means so i'm not cherry picking the data go google it if you don't believe me uh, but taking a step further if we were to analyze why is it the case that Bitcoin mining tends to prefer renewable and sustainable energy anyways, uh, it is because we naturally want a more sustainable supply of energy to mine Bitcoin. Uh, if I was a Bitcoin mining company, I can move my Bitcoin mining machines anywhere, but I still want to minimize the amount of time that I'm moving the machines because there's costs and delays uh, associated with that. So I don't want to put my miners right next to a coal mine that's eventually going to run out. Uh, so I want to put it next to a waterfall where I know that there's always going to be hydro or I'm going to put it next to some wind turbines in an area that always tends to be windy. Uh, so on the note of renewable energy, uh, one major roadblock preventing the greater adoption of renewable energy uh, is the unreliability of certain energy sources such as solar and wind uh, that can be affected by weather conditions. Uh, so this is especially problematic if we consider that the consumption of energy by humans is not constant throughout the day. At least currently, there does not exist any scalable energy storage solutions such as a battery that's sufficient to uh, power an entire city, let's say. So without a way to store or generate the energy, the challenge becomes matching the supply and demand of energy uh, since the generated energy must be consumed right away. Though patterns of energy consumption look slightly different in different locations, its general trends tend to be similar. Energy consumption starts off low in the morning with a small bump in demand in the morning as people wake up and get ready for their days uh, and demand tends to go down and level out during lunchtime and then they pick up again since people finish work and they go home and they eat dinner uh, and it hits a peak in demand as people start cooking their dinner and start watching TV and enjoying their evenings. Uh, so this pattern is called a duck curve. Uh, so it is called a duck curve because the shape of it looks like a duck. And I'll post a picture of a duck curve on my Twitter page if you want to go there. Uh, but this pattern of energy consumption is especially hard to deal with uh, for a grid that uses a lot of solar power as a source. Uh, so solar energy generation tends to peak in the middle of the day, which makes sense, right, when the sun is the highest. Uh, and then the energy drops off as the day winds on uh, and then you know, it's non-existent at night, obviously. So this mismatch between supply and demand causes a huge oversupply of energy during the midday and causes a huge undersupply of energy during the evening. Uh, so this problem prevents grids from adopting solar energy on a mass scale since grid managers cannot effectively match supply to demand. And therefore, electric grids are incentivized to use less solar power than they otherwise would have uh, or not use solar power at all in the first place. Effectively, this means that practically no large-scale grid can rely solely on solar power or even a combination of wind and solar power since both wind and solar are unreliable. 
uh, on top of the aforementioned issues with matching supply and demand. Uh, so even the supply is, is variable. So modern grids that use wind or solar as an energy source will also often rely on a more reliable energy source such as nuclear or fossil fuel uh, to supply a base load of energy uh, so that when the wind and solar energy generated is not enough, you can have a base load that fill in the gaps. Uh, if there is excess energy generated by the solar panels that cannot be used, uh, the grid is forced to shut down the solar panels in a process called curtailment. Uh, since generating too much energy can overload the grid and cause damage. So you definitely, you don't want to generate too much either. And curtailment is effectively a waste of energy uh, since it results in an economic loss for whoever spent the money to build and install the solar panels in the first place. Uh, if you curtail, then you're not using them, right? So you're wasting all that potential energy. Uh, so the way that Bitcoin can help mitigate this problem is to exist as an ever-present purchaser and consumer of energy. Uh, so it'll help with the demand side of things. Instead of forcing the grid to implement curtailment, Bitcoin mining rigs can be set up to mine Bitcoin with the excess energy being generated. And if the energy demand from domestic use is too high, then the Bitcoin mining rigs can shut down either partially or wholly returning the energy that they would have used back to the grid. Uh, so this ensures that excess energy is never wasted in any circumstance because it could always be used to uh, mine Bitcoin when there is excess energy. Uh, so this provides a huge economic incentive for grids to safely invest in solar energy because now they know there is no economic downside to building too many solar panels. You cannot build too many solar panels because you can always use the extra energy to mine Bitcoin, right? So in other words, Bitcoin prevents curtailment from ever happening. A grid with Bitcoin mining equipment integrated into it uh, can guarantee a smoothed out demand curve. So instead of the duck curve, the demand curve will be, will be nice and smooth, right? Nice and predictable. All the grid management has to do now is to ensure that a base load of the grid's energy output can meet the peak demand of consumers with all the Bitcoin miners turned off. And this is a much easier task than trying to coordinate multiple sources of energy to optimize matching demand and minimizing uh, wasted excess energy. So anyways, I know I just said a lot and I felt that I spoke a little bit faster than I usually did. So hopefully you guys got all of that. If you didn't, thankfully, this is a recording, so you can always go back and listen to it again. Um, but yeah, if you're going to take away one thing from today's episode, though, is that I'm absolutely tired of this Bitcoin waste energy argument because it's the exact opposite of what's true. Uh, not only does Bitcoin not waste energy, it is a key solution to our climate problem. Uh, so in my opinion, any real environmentalist out there should be pro-Bitcoin instead of going against it. Uh, but I understand that sometimes the truth resists simplicity. And people need time to kind of wrap their heads around complicated subjects. And this is indeed a complicated subject. Uh, so uh, we'll just have to wait until more people get familiar with Bitcoin and actually do their research and uh, hopefully keep an open mind. Uh, and I hope that that's not too tough of a request from me. Anyways, that's enough content for this week. Next week, we'll discuss even more criticisms of Bitcoin, like asking the question, is it a Ponzi scheme? Hmm. We'll talk about that and more next week. For now, thank you all for listening, 
and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye-bye.